And of course, the tragedy is this, as we think about this text and we're honest with ourselves, is that the same sin resides in our hearts. We really are no different from these folks. We're not necessarily embarking upon a physical building project. But there is in our hearts the same sin, the same tendency to make ourselves equal with God, to replace God, and to thwart his purposes. There is a tendency in our heart that is, is vicious and is steadfast to make a name for ourselves. To make a name for ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to, to stop God's mission because we have our own agendas to advance. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Here's a simple question to ask yourself. During your daily activities and decisions, do you believe God or do you play God? What do I mean by that? Well, what is the basis of your daily activities? Are you conscious of you trying to do what God wants you to do under his authority? Or are you actually a practicing atheist doing whatever you want without God in the picture making yourself the center of your life. In this last part of our series, Building for Whose Glory? Pastor Paul Twist challenges us to question who really is the authority in our lives. Come join in as we listen to part two. In Genesis chapter one, you gave us our job description and it is glorious and it's not enough. So we want to make a name for ourselves and we want to determine the limits by which we live. If In building a tower up to the heavens, they were trying to make themselves equal with God. By seeking a name for themselves, they were trying to supplant God. They were now trying to take the role of God and say, we get to name ourselves. And think again, just how obnoxious and arrogant this is. God had even said to Adam, you get to name everything else. I name you, you name everything else. As Adam names everything else, he presides over the the kingdom. But he doesn't get to name himself. And that's what these builders were trying to do. Thirdly, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is a strange comment, right? If you had read the Tower of Babel incident and I said, what's the issue? Tell me the sin. Perhaps you would say, well, it's pride. And, And I agree, at a fundamental level, it's pride But how then do you account for the fact that the text tells us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth? Why was that even important to them? It's important to them because in Genesis chapter 1, again, God says, you need to go. You need to fill the whole earth. And if I can summarize that Adamic mandate, as we refer to it, God says two things. My image is on you. Fill the earth. Take those two thoughts together. My image is on you. Fill the earth. To be an image bearer is to be a representative of God. You you represent me in a way that no other creature does, and with that, fill the earth. So the way that I summarize the Adamic mandate is that God was saying to Adam, make my glory known in a way that no other creature on planet earth is able to. In a manner and to an extent that nothing else can, you make my glory known. Fill the earth with image bearers. Cause my glory to be manifest 
the whole world over, not just here in Eden. That was the glorious commission that he gave to mankind. And the builders at Babel fold their arms and knowingly defying that say, we will not go. We refuse to get on board with the mission to make God's glory known. It is just obnoxious sin that they're involved here. The pride of of the human heart, certainly, but worked out in such specific ways so as to try and make themselves equal with God, so as to supplant God, and now so as to thwart his mission. And of course, the tragedy is this, as we think about this text and we're honest with ourselves, is that the same sin resides in our hearts. We really are no different from these folks. We're not necessarily embarking upon a physical building project. But there is in our hearts the same sin, the same tendency to make ourselves equal with God, to replace God, and to thwart his purposes. There is a tendency in our heart that is is vicious and is steadfast, to make a name for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to to stop God's mission because we have our own agendas to advance. Now, the antidote to this is twofold. The antidote to not carrying on in the likeness of the builders at Babel is twofold. Number one, Proverbs 27.2, you live your life by it. Don't praise yourself. Let another praise you, someone else's mouth a stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 27.2, we're back in the genre of wisdom. How is it I don't display this kind of arrogance? You write it down on your forehead. You preach it to yourself every day. I will not praise myself. Let someone else praise you, says Proverbs, but not your own lips. A stranger, but not your own mouth. This is not a nice to have. This is not an option. This is God's inerrant word commanding you to not be someone who praises yourself. It might be that in your life, praise comes your way. It might be. But don't ever let it be found to come from your mouth. Don't make a name for yourself. Don't praise yourself. That's somebody else's job. And don't think you can get away with it in a very discreet manner. You know what's going on in your heart, but I'm presenting in a way that doesn't look obnoxious. We can all see it. Pride stinks. It just rises to the surface. You're not kidding anyone. And you're certainly not kidding God. Don't praise yourself. That's the negative side. Thomas Chalmers wrote a famous essay hundreds of years ago called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's free online. The copyright expired hundreds of years ago. You can Google it and get it for free. The expulsive power of a new affection. You need to read it. When you put something out, when you cast something out that is negative, that's not enough. You need to find the positive equivalent to supplant it with. You are determined to not praise your name, to not praise yourself. But what do I do instead? There's a vacuum created there. You tune your heart to the glory of God's mission as he gave it to Adam and Eve and so also to us. You have to tune your heart to be excited about the glorious privilege that God has afforded to us. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, God said to Adam, you need to fill the earth with my glory. That's your job description. That's why we're here. You have to fill the earth with God's glory. 
And there's no way in which you'll obey that imperative until you've tuned your heart with the vision of that mandate. If that sits heavy on your shoulders as just another command that you have to obey, there's nothing to say that you won't go about your life in the way that these builders did. The only way you would rise in the morning and be excited to run towards that imperative is to see the glory that is knit in with it. So think about the fact that God made Adam and he placed him from the dirt at the very top of the created order and he says, you're the only one who gets my image, no one else. And now with that, you are able to represent me in a way that the cows can't. You're able to represent me in a way that the mountains can't. You can make my glory manifest in a way that the oceans aren't able to. That's what he's saying. And you get to do that. And Genesis 3 throws a spanner in the works. But don't miss how the story continues. Repeatedly, throughout the prophetic corpus in the Old Testament, the prophets say, there is a day coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Over and over, the prophets reach forward in salvation history and say, there's a day coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. They're playing off Genesis chapter 1. The mandate was, make my glory known. And the prophets say, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now think about the the language. It's kind of a weird way of saying it. Sometimes they say the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, others the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, okay? But then they say, as the waters cover the sea. One of the things we used to do in the submarine was a deep dive. So we would go away on patrol for three to four months at a time. We'd be submerged for the whole time. And the whole patrol, we would operate at what we called patrol depth. Don't ask me what patrol depth was. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. But it was relatively safe. Before patrol, we used to go on a workup. So we, we're not on patrol, and it's an opportunity for a few weeks to kind of put the boat through its paces, put the crew through its paces. We would do all our testing and make sure that we're ready for whatever might happen on patrol. And one of the things we used to do during workup was a deep dive. And so we'd go out, and the ocean gets very, very, very deep in certain places, And we would take the submarine way below the patrol depth. And certain things happen when you do a deep dive. The submarine starts to creak. There would be drops of water coming in through certain hatches. There were guys stationed at all the major hatches, and they were told to measure the leak rate as the submarine kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and the drops would just increase in their frequency. If you were in a cubicle in one of the bathrooms at the time, the whole submarine squeezes and the door gets jammed shut. You can't open it anymore. And other fun things like that. (laughs) None of us enjoyed doing the deep dive, but we had to do it. We had to make sure the submarine was, was up to it. And I think back on that, and it's just a vivid picture of the waters covering the sea. You don't have to go that far down before the mass of water above you is pressing down on you. If we'd gone much deeper, the submarine would have imploded. And I think the prophets are looking forward and saying, there's a day coming when the glory of God is going to bear down on this earth. It's 
It's going to push down on every square inch of this planet. Not in an oppressive way. We're not going to fear it. We're not going to resent it. We're going to rejoice in that day. And what you need to do as we wait as God's people is to tune your heart to that glorious vision. To trust his word when it says it's coming. It doesn't look like it right now. You can look around you and you can't conceive. How is it going to be that the glory of God is going to be manifest here? I can't see it, but I'm going to choose to trust in his word. And I know that as one of God's children, I have the ability to contribute to that vision. I have the ability to advance that vision. As one of God's children, I can be one who makes manifest today in my life, in the circumstances in which God has placed me, something of his glory. And if that's how you live your life, preaching to yourself, Proverbs 27.2, and preaching to yourself the manifestation of God's glory that is to come, then you cannot be a builder at Babel. And that is our responsibility. We're all building. We're all building. We're all building something. You just need to decide how are you going to build it. Do you build it for the glory of your name or for the glory of God? Well, God responds to that. God responds, reasons to confuse, the third come let us, verse 7. He says, behold, backing up to verse 6, they are... One people, they have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. It's very important to recognize when God says there's nothing that will be impossible for them now, God doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel threatened by their building project. He's not saying now they might overcome me, they might overpower me. Now that they've done this, the whole plan is a threat. He's not saying that. Now that they've decided to make this initial step away from my plan and they're pursuing their own project so as to make a name for themselves, now there's going to be no end to their sin. He's saying there's nothing impossible for them as it relates to the conception of sin in their minds. Or the, or the pursuit of prideful endeavors. Now they've done this initial thing, they're just going to keep going. They're going to destroy themselves. My glory is not threatened by their efforts. God will be glorified. So as God responds to that and says, let us go down and confuse their language, you have to see the grace in it. This is God's grace to them. I'm not going to let you keep going in this direction because you are going to destroy yourselves. If the first come, let us, was come, let us make a foolish decision, and the second was come, now let us make a sinful choice, God responds and says, come, let us deal them a gracious blow. Let us deal to them a gracious blow. Exactly the same way as it was in Genesis chapter 3. God put Adam and Eve out of the garden for their own good. It was an act of grace towards them. And here again, we zoom out to note all of the relationships that Moses is forging between this episode and Genesis chapter 3. The language is intentionally very, very similar. Words like the whole earth, the land, the heavens, the sky. In Genesis chapter 1, that's the first time we read of what we call the divine plural, let us, 
make man in his own image. It doesn't occur anywhere else in these first 11 chapters except here. So as the the people say it, they're using language that God first used. And now God uses the same language again. And and what's happening is all of these connections are being formed back to Genesis chapter 3. Why? So as to communicate to us, here we are again. Sin exploded, 4 through 6. God wiped the slate clean in the flood. Noah emerges, and here we are again. And as you appreciate the desperate situation that we find ourselves in as we read this episode, we are striving to see a glimmer of hope. God deals them a gracious blow, but that's not the final word. His gracious blow to confuse their language is not by any means the final solution. How is it that we're going to avoid sins like this moving forward? How is it that this mess is going to be resolved ultimately? Right now, you disperse everyone, but ultimately, what's the solution? And God starts to show us it even here. The very next verse, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem is a play on the Hebrew word for name. These are the generations of the named one. Very subtly, God is responding by saying, you will have a name but I get to choose it, not you. And then you fast forward to chapter 12 and we see the calling of Abram and it's not incidental that the first thing God says to Abram is go, get back on with the mission. The mission is to fill the earth with my glory and he says to Abram, go, start obeying the mission. And if you do, what will I give you? I will make for you a great name. I will set on you a great name. So from Shem, the name, to the great name with Abram. And you can keep tracing that out. And as you know, the line of Abram is that which gives birth to the nation of Israel, from which we get the tribe of Judah and the line of David, and ultimately Jesus Christ, who in Daniel chapter 7 demonstrates all humility. He's God of very God, and yet he's not striving to assume a position that God has not given to him. And so God responds and elevates him over every nation, every tribe and tongue. And Paul says in Philippians, he gave him a name that is above every other name. And what does Christ do? Well, he calls us into the church. And many have argued that Acts chapter 2 is a reverse of Babel. In Genesis 11, the people are dispersed. They're given all these different languages. They can't understand one another. As the church is birthed, they're brought back together with this strange gift so that now communication is possible. God seems to be reversing what is going on in Genesis chapter 11. And then at the very end of the Bible is where this story finishes, Revelation 18 through 21. It forms this huge chiasm, this huge theological sandwich. And in Genesis 18, we read of the final and the ultimate destruction of Babylon. Genesis 11 is the birth of Babylon, God's enemy through all of Scripture. In in Revelation 18, they're finally destroyed. The wicked city is put to an end. And then the mirror image in that chiasm is the new city, the new Jerusalem. And notice, it's not built by men. It's not built by men up towards the heavens, but the new Jerusalem comes down. It comes down from heaven. And that is God's response to the desperate sin that we see in Genesis chapter 11. And so our decision is whether we'll be on board with that mission, whether we're going to align ourselves with that 
storyline, whether we're going to build for our own name or for God's name, whether we'll refuse to praise ourselves, attune our hearts to the glorious mandate that he's given to us and look forward to that day when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and we will see Christ and be with him forever. He'll wipe away every tear and we'll praise him for all eternity. Pray with me to close. Our Father, we do thank you for this text. It is so familiar to us and yet it is so challenging when we are honest with ourselves and our own hearts. We see in us the same sin that was in the hearts of these men and we are guilty. We confess that we are guilty of seeking to make a name for ourselves, of building in such a way that we would want to be equal with you and replace you and to advance our own mission. And we see in that the desperate situation of mankind. We're in a hopeless situation and we cannot save ourselves, but we praise you for your grace. We thank you this morning that you dealt them a gracious blow. You didn't allow them to persist in their sin. And then immediately we see the response of you to raise up a a generation led by Shem. He has a name given to him by God. And then Abram's commissioned to go and get back on with the task. And you promise him a great name. And it encourages us to look forward to Jesus. He received the name above all names. And we want to anchor ourselves to him. We want to anchor ourselves to him. And we know that 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 means faithfulness to the local church. The church is the bride of Christ. And this is where we want to be because it's It's by being here that we can learn to build in such a way that we don't seek to praise ourselves, we don't seek to make a name for ourselves, but our whole lives can start to be oriented around the fame of Jesus Christ. I do pray this morning that you would give us wisdom, give us resolve by your grace to order our steps around the fame of Christ. Father, keep us back from our sin. Would you hem us in so that we wouldn't be allowed to pursue those things in such a way that we're elevating ourselves, but rather lead us graciously by your word, through our prayers and our fellowship, lead us graciously so that every part of our lives is putting Christ on display, knowing that that is the very best for us, It is the only true way to to build. And we look forward to that last day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We commit ourselves to you. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. So if you look at your life, are you believing God or acting as if you are God? If the latter, how's it turning out? Famed author C.S. Lewis once wrote that the greatest feeling of his life was when he became a Christian and had the freedom to take all the world's problems off of his shoulders. How about you? Tired of being your own atlas and carrying everything on your own? Here's a hint, you weren't made for that. If you wanna learn more about how to live a life for someone besides yourself 
and start to really live, come to our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast, and there you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. While you're at TimelessTruthToday.org, would you consider teaming up with us by supporting this radio ministry with a financial gift? Simply go to Donate on the homepage to give your gift of any size. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as Pastor Paul Twist begins a new six-part series titled, What's in a Name? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening. The Timeless Truth Today.